All right, going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke chapter 8. So appreciate John leading us this morning and appreciate him uh, teaching last week. For those of you that are looking for that podcast, looking for that uh, on YouTube, hopefully we'll be able to get that uh, edited and put up uh, this week. Also was able to figure out uh, just, uh, just before I went on vacation last week that there's a bug that has prevented our podcast from uploading. So if you are a podcast listener uh, and you typically get the messages through podcast. That's not been updating, and I did not realize that, but the, uh, the bug has been updated, and we hope to be able to get all those podcasts over the last few weeks caught up so that you can, you can, get, uh, you can get caught up on any messages you may, have, uh, you may have missed. So this morning, we're going to be picking back up in Luke chapter 8, and honestly, this should be a relatively short message. Uh, I've told you before, never trust a preacher when he says that, but... This should be relatively short because the, the passage in the text that we have to look at is pretty short. Uh, it's not very long, and honestly, it's not very complicated as you read it, other than the fact that it creates some questions in us whenever we read it to make us kind of say, hang on, what is going on here? And it's doubly complicated whenever you uh, bring in some of the other gospel writers who talk about this same story and the way that they explain the same story. It gets, uh, it gets very uh, complicated uh, because uh, some of what is said here is going to make you kind of take a step back and be like, I, I can't believe that Jesus would say uh, something like this. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is indeed for everyone. His message is radically inclusive, but at the same time, shockingly exclusive. Now, how does that work? How can you be both inclusive and exclusive at the same time? And this is where I think so much of our culture gets things wrong is that they make things inclusive when they should make them exclusive and they make it exclusive when it should be inclusive. I'll explain that here uh, in just a second, uh, what I mean by that. And so what we're going to cover is either the most hope-giving message you could ever imagine or one of the most frustrating and confusing messages that you can think of. And You'll just have to sort it out for yourself and figure out where you fall in that one. So let's dive right in and see if we can't sort through some of what Luke is getting at here. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Then his mothers and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's it. That's the text. Uh, so you read that, and it's like, well, hang on. Well, Jesus said that? What? That doesn't sound like the, the kind, loving Jesus that we know. That, that passage is short, it, but it's a little bit odd, right? Like, what is going on here? It feels like we're missing something. So if you go to the book of Mark, and I encourage you to go to the book of Mark, I'm trying to stay out of other Gospels as I go through the book of Luke, because I think Luke is very intentional in, in how he shares these stories. But I think the book of Mark is going to help us kind of fill in some gaps with this story, and then we'll come back to the context of why Luke is sharing the way that he is. And if you thought it was a little bit odd whenever you heard it in, uh, in Luke chapter 8, wait till you hear it in Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 20, and then we'll skip a big section there, and then we'll finish uh, at the end of the chapter. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, this is Jesus, so that they could not even eat. 
And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, to take Jesus, and they were saying, he is out of his mind. Skip down to verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, it's an odd passage. Straight up, it's an odd passage. It's especially odd whenever Jesus' own family comes to Jesus and says that he is out of his mind. What in the world do we do with that? Now you can go right now on YouTube and you can find plenty of people who would want to debunk the Christian faith, uh, whether they be like Jewish scholars or whether they be people completely enemies uh, of, 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 Jewish, of Jews and Christians that will take this passage and they will say, you believe in Jesus, but even Jesus' family thought he was crazy. You've heard the... the, the, uh, uh, the it's called the trilemma that C.S. Lewis puts forward that says that Jesus has to be one of three things. You can't say he's a good teacher. He is either, uh, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He has to be one of those three things. And what is typically said and what C.S. Lewis says is that uh, nothing in his characteristic, nothing in his makeup, nothing in his morality suggests that he is a liar and nothing in what he does or the way that he acts or the way he interacts with people would, would suggest that he is a lunatic. But this passage might actually push back against that just a little bit. If even his own family thought he was out of his mind, maybe Jesus is just crazy. Maybe Jesus is just one of those guys walking around, talking to himself, and then somebody heard him and a few people started following him, and it never should have got, it, this all just got out of hand. Maybe Jesus is a little bit crazy. That's what it seems like it's saying, right? So we've got to work through this. We've got to figure this out just a little bit. Does this actually undercut our faith and our ability uh, to believe and trust in Jesus and who he is? When you read these passages in isolation, it can, and it can leave us a little bit confused. The scene is pretty simple, honestly. Jesus is doing a lot of teaching. He's gotten so popular that, that he's, he's gotten all kinds of people gathered around him. Uh, they can't even seem to, his family can't even seem to get through to him. His disciples are kind of swarmed by people. And so the disciples have set up uh, a bit of like a, an entourage, a bit of a, a posse there with Jesus to kind of protect him and keep him uh, safe. They, they're working to keep a buffer zone. Uh, and, and, and so much so that the, the disciples are, are kind of running interference here and his own family can't get to Jesus. They can't make it to him. Now, where was his family in this? Were they, were they disciples and followers too? It's kind of hard to tell when you read through the New Testament. Best guess is probably not among his followers. Uh, so, so like they're, they're kind of around, but they're not among his followers. But almost certainly they would have been known to the disciples. And so they, they kind of relay a message through the disciples to Jesus and say, Jesus, your family's here and they need to talk to you. And you would think at that point Jesus would be like, oh yeah, for sure, I get that. Hey guys, hang on just a second. It's my, it's my mom. Like I need to go talk to my, my mom. And who's not going to understand that? Of course, if your mom shows up, you got to talk to your, your mom. If your mom calls and, you, and you're like, hey, I got to answer this, it's my mom. 
Everybody's going to understand that. Everybody gets that, right? But Jesus does not do that. In fact, Jesus gives a, 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 a nice little like stiff arm and says, nah, I'm good. I don't really need to talk to them. That doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't jive with any category that we have for Jesus. Now, we don't know who else is involved in all of this. Uh, we don't know exactly who it is. We don't know if he's got brothers and sisters. We don't know if it's just a handful of brothers. In Matthew, it names brothers James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Don't get super confused because those are all really common names. And don't be like, oh man, Judas was Jesus' brother. Different Judas. Um, so, like... Those brothers are named, and Mary is a part of that. And so it might just be them, and it might be some sisters as well. We don't really know. We're not for sure. What is for sure is they can't get to Jesus and, and talk to him because of the level of the crowds. His popularity has grown too much. But the first thing that we've got to deal with is this verse 21. And so before we get to Jesus' response, we've got to get to the, the reaction of his family there in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. How in the world can Jesus' family, of all people, how can Jesus' family, Mary in particular, believe that Jesus is out of his mind whenever they say this? How in the world does she get to that place? Now, there's three kind of options here that I can, that I can come up well, for. One of them being that she just thought he was crazy. That one doesn't jive for me uh, because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because she's visited by the angel. She knows the context of who Jesus is. She knows all of those things. And so how she would get there doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So if you want to say, no, she legit thought he was crazy, we're not given a whole lot of information here. We're not given a whole lot of what their response is. So anything that we come up with, come up with whatever I say here this morning, is going to be a bit of conjecture. But I think if you'll follow me, you'll see where I, I kind of come up with it. So one is that he actually could be. The, the, the other is that that word there, family, doesn't necessarily have to refer to family. It could refer to like close family uh, friends. And so it wouldn't necessarily be Mary who thought that Jesus was out of his mind. Uh, maybe his siblings would have, though. I, I don't know. Maybe there's some family tension there. I can imagine explaining the story of how Jesus came to be versus how the rest of his brothers and sisters came to be might create an odd dynamic uh, in the home, right? Like trying to explain how Jesus showed up and how Jesus is the chosen one. And now you've got the rest of the, the siblings, right? We, we see how that creates an odd dynamic just with, uh, with, with uh, Joseph in the, in the Old Testament. So maybe that's there. Maybe that's what it is. And the siblings are thinking this. Or maybe it's friends. So that's one possibility. Uh, or like it's just friends, not family at all. The second possibility is it could have just been uh, the brothers. Uh, the brothers may have uh, felt this way. There may have been some animosity towards Jesus. Some of the commentators would say that this is... Uh, part of what's going on here. Again, all of that's conjecture. That's not really said anywhere. It's assumed that that must be what is driving that. So there's some family tension that's driving it. So one is that it's just friends. It's not family, that we mistranslate that word family when really it could be something broader. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think family is a pretty good, pretty good translation there. The second, it could have been his brothers, not Mary, but his brothers. You know, they didn't have the benefit of the revelation from the angel. 
but the third, and I think the most likely one, is, is, is this. And so, again, I'll concede it's speculation as well. But we know that when Jesus was just a baby, that Mary was warned that Jesus' life would be hard. It would be full of opposition. And that that hardship in Jesus' life would also bring much pain and grief into Mary's life. Do you guys remember this? Whenever she met with Simeon, the the prophet, whenever uh, right after Jesus was born, it's from Luke chapter 2, verse 33. We'll read this. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your, your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so what, what's being said there by Simeon is Jesus is going to face much opposition, and you, Mary, uh, by proxy, in watching your son go through this, you will feel the pain and the grief as well. So you can imagine if you're told this, especially on the heels of being visited by angels and the miraculous birth that is Jesus, knowing who he is, that, that, and it, it talks about how Mary treasures these things up in her heart. You can imagine that that all stuck in Mary's head, right? And so my guess here, my best guess here, is that Jesus' family was worried about Jesus, not because he was saying stuff that made him look foolish, but because he was saying stuff very, very publicly for the first time in his life. He was saying things and doing things that he had never done for everyone else to see. He was out performing miracles. He was calling out the Pharisees. He was claiming to forgive sins. He was calling out all those that were around him and doing things that you just, as a good Jew, aren't supposed to be doing. He was saying things that was making people mad, and he did not seem to care. I don't think this was them saying that Jesus was not in his right mind for claiming to be God. And in Mark, that section that we skipped over there in Mark chapter 3, is where he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He talks about God forgiving sins. He's saying things that are direct claims on him being God. And I, I don't so so like I don't think that this is them saying, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe that he is saying this because he's crazy." I think this is he's crazy for saying this. What in the world are you doing? Why would you do something like this? I think they're saying Jesus isn't thinking straight in being so public with his ministry. Mary knew what would happen if Jesus did this. Mary knew what was in front of Jesus the moment that he begins to do this publicly and in front of everyone else. And he, this, is, this is Mary, in effect, saying, Jesus, are you crazy? You're going to get yourself killed. And this is Jesus, in effect, replying back, saying, yeah, I know. That's what's happening here. They think that he's out of his mind because he's not preserving himself. He's not protecting himself. They know the prophecy is there. They know that this kind of mark is on his head. And yet Jesus is proceeding forward fully in the view of the public. So what are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with all this? So so first, so we got got Jesus' family and then we have Jesus' reaction. So so first, let's just consider uh, his family. 
It is not, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it was bad for his family to like call him out and say, hey, what you're doing is dangerous. We wish you would stop. Even if the suffering is inevitable, I don't think it's wrong for them to worry about him and for them to try to talk him into a little more discretion than what he is showing. They have every right to try and protect him. So I'm not going to knock them for that. But we've got to see what's ultimately happening and why Jesus' reaction to them seems so cold. Why that corrective response seems like it is so cold. You see, in in trying to get Jesus to, to pull back or to take a break or to protect himself, what Jesus' family is ultimately doing is they are making a claim on Jesus and they're trying to tame Jesus down, asking him to do what is in their best interest. Now, it may be in what's in his best interest at, at well. I'm sure they would argue that that is uh, the case, but they're making their case on the basis of what they see and on the basis of what they know. They are telling Jesus, do this because I can see from my perspective that it would be the best course of action for my life and for your life, Jesus, if you chill out just a little bit. If you just back off just a little, you don't have to be so public with what you're doing, Jesus. Just back it off just a little bit. From my perspective, you're going to get yourself killed and that's not good for anybody. Jesus, on the other hand, is operating from a totally different vantage point, and he has a totally different end goal. His family's end goal is self-preservation for Jesus and for themselves. I mean, think about this for just a second. I know that the, that the helicopter mom is like a, a relatively recent phenomenon in like world history. Like It's not always been around, but if you were told... If you were told by a prophet that Jesus' life would be full of pain and that his pain would bring you pain too, I'd be willing to bet that you would work like a helicopter mom would. You You would be super protective. You would be very aware of anything that would seem to threaten him. You would be very aware of anything that kind of seems to come at him. You'd be worried about everything he did, everything he said, everything that people said about him. In some ways, this is a mom's job to do this. And so if you're given that heads up ahead of time, then you're certainly going to operate under this and say, man, I can't let this happen to him. I have to protect him from what is coming for him. Which is why Jesus responds the way that he does. Why he breaks that bond down. When he is 12, this, this, whole, this whole incident reminds me so much of when he was 12 years old and they find him in the temple, right? The same kind of response. Where the response is, what else would you expect me to be doing here? When he was 12, they find him in the temple. They're like, he's like, why were you looking everywhere? Of course I was in the temple about my father's business. You know, a response to us, like whenever we hear that, it kind of sounds like a bit of a smart aleck response, right? Whenever we hear that. But, but, but the, the point that he's making is you've got to understand I'm operating under different bonds, different things that, are, that, that, that supersede our family bonds. And so this incident is the same kind of message. 
Just like he's talking about his father when he's not talking about Joseph, he's talking about his heavenly father. Now he's talking about his family, but he's not talking about his blood family. He's not talking about his mom and his siblings. He isn't denying his lineage so much as he is providing a much needed corrective on perspective. His mom is not able to call the shots here because and, and he, she is not the one that he is most concerned with. This is really good news for us. This is very good news for us. It's interesting this week where I was at the beach and we got a chance to, uh, to hang out. It's interesting to walk up and down the beach and you kind of see how our culture does the beach. I don't know if it's like this, like all over the world. I don't know exactly how that works. But the way our culture does the beach is each family kind of operates in its own little pod, right? Like you got to get down to the beach. You got to get your spot so that your oceanfront. We, we, there was 10 of us that were there, my, my, my parents and my sister's family. And we've got like... We've got 10 chairs, we've got boogie boards, we've got drinks, we've got all the stuff that we've got to haul all the way down the beach, and we've got to get a good spot, and we get our spot. And once we've got our spot, this is our spot. Nobody comes and hangs out with us. Like, like you might go six feet down the beach, and then you've got the next family's pod that is there, right? And then you just have these pods of families all the way uh, down the beach. And it kind of operates uh, this way. Every now and then you see an overlap, like a big group of kids or something like that. But for the most part, this is who we interact with. This is who we play with. This is who we do our things with. The family unit is how the beach kind of gets divided up. Even today, whenever the, 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 the family isn't the thing, when you're on family vacation, that is the way it's all set up. In Jesus' day, the communities would have been that even to a greater extent. The communities worked together to raise the families, but the family was the essential part of everyday life. It would have been exceptionally rare for someone to get married and move away. That's not really how that worked, especially they would typically join in with the, the, the husband's family and they would just build onto the family compound, right? Everything was there together. Everything was like right there. That's how, that's how it all worked because you needed family for security. There was no 911 to call. You needed family for food. You needed family for uh, for, the, for for for. for all the necessities of everyday life. You had to have family. So family was a big deal. And yet for Jesus, he needed to make it clear that his immediate family was not the most important part of what he was doing. We'll see how that's critical here in just a minute. Let me say that again. Jesus needed to make it clear that his immediate family was not the most important part of what he was doing. Now for us, especially for those of you in here that are parents, like you hear that and it's like, well, no, my family is my most important responsibility. For Jesus to deny his family, that is horribly offensive whenever we judge it on the basis of the, the, the earthly bonds that is our families. But Jesus has to show us there is a bigger picture that he has. For now, we need to see that see see how we do the same uh, the, the same kind of things that Jesus' family was doing. 
For us, we try to do the same thing that his family was doing. We see Jesus as accessible and in many ways ours. Right? We show up at church and we see Jesus as fully accessible and he's kind of our Jesus, right? That's kind of how we view him and in in some ways that's true. After all, this series is Jesus for everyone. The problem with that is that if we don't define that well, we have to make sure that we lay that out in the right way. And that we understand what we mean when we say that. Because he isn't really our Jesus. He is Jesus for everyone, but he's not our Jesus for everyone. (laughs) That's right. Well, that's right. See, here's the thing. He He is your Jesus. He's our Jesus. That's exactly how that works. But we have to make sure that whenever we say that, what we mean is we're talking about Jesus, not the way that we define him or that we want him to be. And so that's exactly right. So Jesus comes and we understand that that. When we come to him, our best choice, our best available thing is not that we define Jesus and tell Jesus, Jesus, this is how I need you to be. I need you to act in this way. But instead, we come to Jesus and our walk is then with Jesus. There's too many people. The the problem that we have is there's too many people in the church today full of people that come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to need you to calm down your claim on my life. I'm going to need you to back off just a little bit. I'm going to need you to chill out just a bit because if you can do that, then we can get along really, really well. If you can just back off just a little bit, we'll be good. Please, no more calling out of sin. No more calling me to do things that make me uncomfortable. Jesus, I'm going to need you to just listen up. And if you would just listen, then I can explain to you how all of these things can be made better and how my life can be made better if you'll just follow my plan that I have right here. How I can claim you as mine but not have that whole pierce your own heart through stuff like Mary had to deal with. How I can skip this whole take up my cross thing and you and I can just be good buds. You see, Jesus' family was trying to get Jesus to dial it back a little bit because their perspective was this isn't going to go well for anybody. Our perspective so often in the church is we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need you to dial it back because I don't see how this is going to go well for me. And Jesus says that's not how this is going to work. In effect, that's what he's telling his family. You guys don't get to set the agenda for me. We don't get to set the agenda for Jesus either. Mary knew what lied ahead for Jesus and for her. We can all understand her desire to avoid that for her son and for herself. We can all understand where that comes from. We too often make the same ask of Jesus. Jesus, can't you just do your thing for me without the whole suffering and pain being along the way? Without the take up the cross part. I'm doing all I can to avoid that. The issue then comes when Jesus responds in a clear way. And he doesn't say, you're right. 
Let's avoid the cross. But instead, he says, it's time for you to take up your cross. What then? That is quite literally the crux of our faith. That is quite literally where our faith is decided. Listen to how Jesus says it in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, different story, same kind of a theme. He's talking to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. And, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. If God were your father, you would love me. And then there's that issue again. If you were here two weeks ago, we talked about this, how in the context of Luke chapter 8, this is the, 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 the drumbeat of Luke chapter 8, is this hear the word, do the word. Hear the word, do the word. And there it is again, hearing from God. All this language about family and Jesus, it's constantly moving the conversation from our temporary kingdoms of this world to the eternal kingdoms that have no end. And this is what he does back in our original text in Luke chapter 8. Let me read it again. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What Jesus is showing us is that those who think they have the clearest and most direct claim on Jesus do not. In fact, they have no claim on him at all. If Jesus' family doesn't have a claim on Jesus, how much less do the Jewish people have a claim on Jesus being their own? And how much less us church-going Gentiles in Jefferson City, Tennessee? The reality is that no one is born a Christian. No one is born a follower of Jesus. No one just is. To follow Jesus, you have to follow Jesus. I know that seems like a a basic point, but I think this is the one that he's making here. Just because you are my earthly family, brothers and sisters, does not mean that you get an immediate claim on me. And so it is with us too. You can't just show up at church and then you just are a Christian. That is not how it works. Showing up on Sundays does not make you a Christian, even if you did it nine months before you were born. There's nothing that you can do that just inherently says, this makes me a Christian and therefore I have a claim. And this is a good thing. Why is this a good thing? Because if showing up is what made you a Christian, then only those that have been showing up would qualify. And those that have been showing up for the longest would qualify to be the best Christians. But the qualifications are open to all. Whether you have been at church your whole life or whether you just came through the doors today. He is radically inclusive. He is for everyone. Anyone can get in on this. Being part of Jesus' family. Anyone can get in. 
This is a grace that is deeply felt by those that consider themselves to be outsiders to this message. But it is a grace that is completely lost on those who grew up in church, who know a hymnal by number, who, 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 can, who can quote uh, verse after verse after verse, who show up every single Sunday as long as you can remember. You see, for those people that have been in church their whole lives, they don't think they need the grace. They can make the claim on Jesus because He's always been theirs. But that's not how it works. All can come. But only those who actually do come belong. It's only the ones that hear. This analogy is not perfect, but going back to us thinking about being on the, the, the beach, we're in our different pods, right? And you can see up and down the beach, you've got like babies over here on this side. You've got you know, other people over here on this side and they're doing their thing and that, and that kind of thing. There's all kinds of parents like yelling back and forth at kids. And then when we go down, like uh, Isaiah got where he was doing a bunch of, of skimboarding where we were at. And the area that he was at, create, there's this, this area that created for, for skimboard. And there's kids everywhere. There's, there's kids everywhere, like ages 5 to like 18. They're, they're all over the place. And there's parents yelling at kids all over the place to do this, don't do that. You do this, you do whatever you want. Isaiah and, 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 uh, and Abby, whenever she was down there too, like they're, they're tuned out to what the other parents are saying. The only thing that they're going to hear is what's going to be coming from us because we're the only ones that can make a claim on them. Why? Because they're part of the family. Do you understand how that works? They're part of our family, and so we can do that. There was one kid that, that went by... Uh, this is going to take way too long, but I'm going to explain this anyway. So where we were at, we got a ton of rain while we were down there. And there's these coastal lakes that are right on the edge of the beach, right? They're, they're right there on the edge of the beach. And they're designed that whenever you get a ton of rain, they will overflow their banks and they'll flow into the ocean. And it looks like coffee flowing into the ocean. It's nasty. It looks gross. But apparently it's safe. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, but so, so, so that happened. When that happens, it's like the dam breaks. And so this water just comes rushing out into the ocean. And apparently it's very rare for this to happen. It, it doesn't happen very often. And the first day that we went down after that dam had broken, like the water was, was rushing. I mean, it was, it was rushing fast. So think like river rampage at Dollywood fast, right? That into the ocean, which seems like super unsafe, but like five-year-olds floating by like it was no big deal amusement park ride and we're like I don't know this doesn't I don't know this doesn't seem this doesn't seem wise and at one point I heard a, a mom yell to a, a kid he was probably six or seven he was like laying on the back of a boogie board floating on this thing backwards out into the ocean and the mom's yelling hey you've got to be safe you need to like turn over or do something and the kids he's like six or seven floats by and he says if I die I die and that that's that's how he just kept on floating by. And I was just like, all right, well, I guess he's at peace. But, uh, but, but that's, that's the whole thing, right? Is like he, he, he's kind of listening to his mom, at least responding to his mom anyway. But that's, that's, that's how it works is that if you're in a family, you listen to your father whenever they speak to you. Now, 
obviously there's like disobedience and all that stuff like plays into it. I said it wasn't a perfect analogy. But other kids, if I try to tell another kid what to do, they're just going to look at me and they're just going to be like, if I die, I die. Like they're not going to care. They, have, they do not care what I have to say to them, right? And frankly, I'm not that worried about them either. Because they're not in my family. And this is the point that Jesus is making. Those that are in the family of God, those that call God their Father, will hear the voice of their Father and they will obey. This is the point that he is making whenever he says at the end in in verse 21, my mother and my brothers and those who hear the word of God and do it, that is my family. And this is true for us too. And this is a good thing for us. Now hear me. I'm not saying you earn your way into the family. This is not how this works. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting about family is that like you are, you are set up to be in a family and you don't really get to decide what family you're in. I can't be a mixin if I, no matter what happens. I cannot be a mixin, right? I, that doesn't work. I have to be an outsider to the, to the mixin family. I could go over to, to John's house every day. I could go over every day. I could eat their food every day. I could hang out at their house every day. And at best, I would be a good friend, probably a nuisance, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be part of the family. Even if they're like, hey, you're like family. Still not family. You can't act your way into a family. The way that we become part of the family and that we get to be no longer outsiders is we are adopted into the family. That's how we are brought into the family. And this is what so much of the New Testament is talking about and inviting us to. Jesus is saying that those that are a part of his family is not just for those that are a part of that closed branch of the family tree. It's for anyone that calls God Father, hears his voice, and follows him. Galatians chapter 4 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, not a friend of the family, sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. This is the promise of the gospel. That we are, as it says in in, uh, Proverbs 18, a friend that is closer than a brother. That is us, sons co-heirs with Christ. Daughters, co-heirs with Christ. We are not orphans who long to be a part of a family but can't seem to find one that will take us. We are not kids at the playground looking at the other family that seems to have so much fun with a nice mom and dad hoping that we can come and hang out. That is not us. We, we are not, I've told you about my friend uh, Cameron growing up. He, he used to... Uh, he used to come over, I can't even remember what age it started, as long as I can remember, fifth or sixth grade. And he used to come over, like he would come over every day. He would fix himself a bologna sandwich and eat Oreos and drink sweet tea. Every day. 
I don't even think anybody in our family liked bologna sandwiches. We just had them for him. So he would come over and he'd eat them every day. He slept at, at, at my house as much as he did his house. He was there all the time. He was like family. But not son. We are sons. Some of you come to church all the time and you eat all the food and you do all the things and you're like family. But you haven't given your life over and said, I am going to do the will of the Father because He is my Father. I'm going to hear His voice because I hear the voice of the Father. But it's there. Radically inclusive. More inclusive than than even being a part of his own family. But radically exclusive is that it's only available to those that will follow him and hear the voice of the Father. This is the message that he is giving. Hebrews 2.11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And this is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers and sisters with Christ. Part of the family. What a grace that is. You don't have to just be like, 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 like be in the right place at the right time and grow up in the right way and go to church at the right places and do the right things to make yourself look like you're part of the family. You're invited. That invitation is open to anyone who will come. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are so insufficient in our understanding of your grace that we would be considered to be part of the family of God. That not only have you not rejected us, but instead you have invited us in and you have said, come eat at the family table. All that that you have is ours. Co-heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters. Father, may we understand what that grace truly means for us. It's in Christ's name we pray.